Welcome back to Life MMA in the NBA. I'm your host, DJ San Marco, and back from injured reserve as Nick goes down with a major injury that has to do with his apartment. Let me welcome back in our illustrious co-host, the PhDOGG, with a degree in motor control and learning from Cal State Long Beach, the professor, Dr. Will Wu. Straight off a two-show suspension. Yeah, what's up, Intro man? with Black Betty. That's how we do it. <laughs> Applause for Dr. Will Wu. Can I get an amen? Ha-ha! <laughs> I think I'm the only co-host to be suspended from the show multiple times. Too. I know, I know, I know. You know, but it's like Adam Silver, man. He's got to do his business, man. Things happen. We just got, you know, we got to deal with what we got, man. You know, it's not that we want to do these things, man. It just happens, you know. So, uh, one love to the commish. Ad- hey, and we I got something. Yeah, before we even get started here, I got something to say to Adam Silver, and I I want a little backup from my boy Willoughby the Thrillaby Woo, and that is that we have got and Bill Simmons uh, talked about it in his podcast. So, uh, you you definitely should be listening to Bill Simmons, Mister Commissioner. But we gotta stop the flopping. We gotta stop rewarding the flopping. We can't have guys dribbling up to the three-point line, stopping, and then jumping sideways into a defender and getting a foul called. And if somebody does flop, I want a foul called on them after the referees watch the replay. That'll stop it. Are you complaining, DJ, about Adam Silver and how he's running the NBA? That man has done... Such a wonderful job, man. I'm not. We're not here to give out participation trophies. I am reiterating what his boy, Adam Silver's boy, is Bill Simmons, and if Bill's we, right. If we look at the top people, NFL, Major we, League no, Baseball, we're not doing that. NHL, we're not. No, we're NBA, not grading Adam, on a curve. Adam no. Silver is the best. Even he on a straight scale, he's the best. He is. We're not grading on a curve. He's the best. We're talking about what's wrong with the NBA that we want corrected. But I'm I not saying that you. I don't love Commissioner Silver. I know you agree with me. You're trying to form <laughs> an argument for absolutely no reason. I know you agree with me. I just we just need to preface it that Adam Silver is doing an absolutely wonderful job. I love I love him compared to his peers at both the professional and amateur levels. Um, regardless of sport, he's doing a really good job running that league. Now, having said that, what are the things that annoy us about the NBA? The flopping, I definitely agree with you. Um, the jumping into the defender, I definitely yeah. agree with you. But I will say this, they have gotten better because I think they're trying to prevent or stop the offensive player drawing fouls on the defensive player by leaning in because they do have the vertical or the vertical they call vertical it, plane vertical plane yeah. to where if you're just jumping straight up as a defender uh i i thought that was always a rule but maybe they're just executing a little bit better with respect to the referees not calling these types of things but it still happens anyways um one of the most annoying things although he's a absolutely wonderful player one of the things that annoys me and i think really kills the experience of watching the nba for me is james harden and how he draws fouls and there's mm-hmm. obviously pre- there's obvious preferential treatment um going on g- going on with james harden if you're a james harden fan you don't think so then you're just in a 
James Harden reality, and that's why you don't think so. But if you look at the video and you see what gets called um, on or for him relative to other players, it's just no comparison. So those things kind of annoy me. It's in preferential treatment in the NBA has always happened. Mm-hmm. We we had it a lot when we had Magic Johnson, and Magic Johnson would get uh, fouled, and they would be phantom fouls, and he would. All the stars got it. All the stars get it, yeah. But the flopping Um, was not the acting where you can see on the replay that an elbow didn't even touch this person's shin, excuse me, their chin, and they're throwing their head back. And and so I agree with you. And I I think it looks like to me um, that they've cracked down on it a little bit. But the fact that Bill Simmons went into, I don't know if it was he and and Ryan Rosillo together, but... They did at least a one-minute tirade on these things and it what's ruining the game, and they got to fix that. you got to let the guy play defense. As you said, that guy's got to be able to jump straight up, okay? And if he's not moving, if this guy's driving down the lane and just running somebody over that has their feet set, I mean, come on, man. you got to let these guys play defense. I don't, I, I don't want to see a return to my New York Knicks of the 90s <laughs> or the 1988 89 Detroit Pistons I'm not I'm not advocating for that but I think I don't want the flopping I don't want it to become World Cup soccer where a dude like looks like he gets shot and then is saying to his friend hey man did the ref walk away yet okay cool now I can be okay help me up you know that kind of yeah. stuff and they holding their hand over their face and the whole nine yards. You got to stop the, it, man. The soccer the soccer antics are pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, and I love the World Cup. I'm sure you do too. It's phenomenal. No, the, I don't like soccer. You don't like watching World Cup soccer? No, I don't like it. Oh my god! You, well, you don't have a wife who's Brazilian, so <laughs> no, no. I actually I had a Scottish friend that introduced it, introduced me to that sport uh, end of senior year, and and I was kind of in then. So yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not ultra. Like people will complain about baseball being boring. Um, uh, soccer, yeah, soccer's. I'm like, dude, I'd much rather watch it doesn't do it for you. It, it doesn't do it for you. You're not saying it's a stupid sport. You just, it doesn't do it for you. <laughs> I'm not, I can't, I can't, I cannot agree with you on that, DJ. <laughs> you think it's a stupid sport? <laughs> no, no, I won't go as far as that. No, of course you won't. I, I just, it's just really low on the, it's really low ranking for me. And um, I, I think the cherry on top is like when you have dudes that are just flopping all over the place. Um, which kind of sucks. I think there are things that you can do that soccer purists, um, <laughs> that soccer purists would hate, just like hockey purists would hate. Um, that would make it a lot more exciting. Is like get, get rid of how they do offsides and things like that. But you know, that's mm-hmm. that's changing fundamental components of the game, and it's going to change certain tactical things associated with the game. So I can understand how the purists say that. But um, which you know, reminds- for, the same, for the same reason, I lo- I like to watch jujitsu. But I can see how it's painful for someone who Absolutely. doesn't know a lot about jujitsu. Right. Um, so you might like soccer, but it's painful for me to watch soccer. Oh, yeah, like I, I, yeah. I, I, I wish I could do this. Like there's there's soccer channels or channels on my lineup that play a lot of soccer. I wish I could have the option of just deleting them. <laughs> charge me for it, but just don't show it to me. Don't don't give it to me as an option. You're cold, man. You're cold. I want to see. Uh... I wanted to just remind everybody about talking about the rules of basketball on 
hang up and listen, which is a very, very intelligently spoken podcast. In fact, I'll send it to you, Will. They're guys from Slate.com that do it. One of them is Josh Levine, who went to uh, your university, LSU, where you got your uh, master's degree. PhD. Uh, PhD, sorry. And uh, where was your master's, UCLA? Um, I went directly from my undergrad to a PhD program. Oh, wow. Very, awesome. Very, very, uh, very, yeah, it's not very common. but That's awesome. That goes to show to smart how much, which, which doesn't explain why you're doing a podcast with me, but that's a whole other topic. Um, so this guy wrote a book about, uh, the history of basketball. And I guess there was like 17 rules that Dr. James Naismith, uh, made up. And do you know how, so this guy was super interesting, very well-spoken Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis, who, uh, wrote, um, uh, word freak. He's a Scrabble and a Scrabble fanatic. So you could imagine what his vocabulary is. Oh my goodness. It's ridiculous. Um, okay, so this gentleman, How to Watch Basketball Like a Genius, uh, was is the book. And he said, the, do you know where the backboard came from? Is when they had the peach, the peach basket thing, he said immediately this sport had spectators in the stands. And, and so they would have the basket uh, mounted up on something and fans would reach around and goaltend the ball nice. and that's where the backboard came from <laughs> along with the you know that they talked about the 24 second shot clock and how that came about and then about 24 seconds was about enough time so anyway really really good stuff so um so will i will, let me play this for you real quick i downloaded this song that i discovered while i was in um when i went to uh selma this is the Listen to this woman's voice. Three part harmony. Is that like that gives me the chills? I was just going to say that. It gives me the chills. It gives me the chills when she said deep down in the south and the way that woman sings. That's the Montgomery Gospel Trio and the Nashville Quartet along with a guy named Guy Caro who's doing the uh, the, uh, baritone vocals in in behind that song. But if you guys... You, you guys can find that on Apple Music. The, the album is called We Shall Overcome. And it remind, every time I hear it, it reminds me of one of the most seminal moments of my life is moving here. Well, obviously, you guys got rid of me, kicked me out of California in um, December of 2017. And I moved here. And by April, we had had a hurricane. So I evac'd. And uh, I said to my friend Justin, the guy I do the motorcycle riding with, I said, where, where do I go? He said, dude, he goes, I got a, you know, like a, a loft in Selma. And I was like, Selma, wow, let's do it. Is there, an, he goes, there's another one. I go, I'll book, I'm going online, book it right away. So it was called the Woolworth Loft. A lot of people remember Woolworth department stores from back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and it had been converted uh, into these lofts. So we went there, and man, seeing the history of that place, 
walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where obviously, um, uh, what's the congressman that John Lewis uh, that just died and his funeral procession went over that bridge on horse and carriage um, and his casket. Uh, on the opposite side of the bridge is where the, um, the African-American memorial is on the left side of the bridge as you're going from Selma proper um, over the bridge into Dallas County there. And it's, it's very poorly funded. I would, I would have wished that people would give more money to that, that memorial. But it's very, very powerful. And if you ever are in the South or are traveling with your family, and I mean this not only for Will, but for anybody out there, I recommend you go to Selma. Uh, you can drive by the Brown AME Church where there's a statue of Martin Luther King Jr., the doctor. It's a phenomenal place. I loved it. Hey, man, you forgot. I lived in the South for four yeah, I, years. I, I know, I know. You went to, yeah, okay. A Chinese, Mexican, <laughs> American-born SoCal kid from UCLA psychobiology lived in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana for four years. That's like, you could probably do a vlog or a, a series or movie out of that experience, but... Man, that was I. I was born, and raised in Southern California. Went to undergrad in Southern California. Obviously, Southern California is very diverse in its ethnic and cultural makeup. But my experience in the South—that was the first time it really hit me in the head and in the face how culturally diverse just the United States is. We have our own cultures in the United States as Americans. And I just look at the South and I'm like, wow. And then you go to the South and the South even has its own cultures. Cause I was in Louisiana in Louisiana. I spent most of my time in Baton Rouge and New Orleans and Louisiana is even a little different subculture of the South because you have a big French influence. You have a big Caribbean influence. You have a French Canadian influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really, really eye-opening um, the different, the different cultures within the south mm-hmm. there are um i you know i had a i had a i wouldn't trade that experience for anything because it really opened up my eyes to uh who we are as a who we are as a country and how different we are within within the country that that we live in i think there are kind of two major life experiences that i that i've had that have influenced me and one was living in the south um during graduate school for the four years. And then another was, you know, early in undergrad, having a really close um, friend from, who was born and raised in Lebanon and was a Muslim. And that was really educational for me from the standpoint of I grew up, I went to, you know, I went to a Lutheran K through 12 school, went to a Catholic high school, um, was pretty much raised Episcopalian in the Christian faith. And then having a viewpoint, you know, and having an education of the Muslim religion from someone who's lived, who obviously lived it his whole life, but had gone through and grew up in a war toward country as a, as a Muslim and explained to me how the different, you know, sects of Muslims religions how they even war against each other so it was the shia yeah that was really eye-opening having a better having a better representation of what's really occurring in the middle east compared to what we typically hear 
um, you know, and then that Southern experience was really eye-opening too. And so I think those are, especially during these times now in which what we think or how we think about how our country should go is often divided by ge geographical uh, region. Um, you know, my Southern experience was, was really eye-opening and very informative for me. Not only, you know, I went there to get obviously academically trained, but um, there were a lot of things that I learned just living there for four years. Um, things that, you know, like I remember playing basketball in, um, you know, at the university rec center and experiencing and getting to know Asians that were in the school that grew up in Louisiana. Very, very different from Asians growing up in Southern California. Um, just like people would ask me how, and I'm like, dude, the mindset is totally different. I was, you know, I always grew up in a diverse, in a diverse environment. Um, and I think when people ask me, how is it different or how are they different? I always explain it this way. I grew up not having any, not feeling that I had any ceiling on top of me in terms of what I could do in my career. But from what I observed there, man, it's like they got to be, it seemed like they were conscious and aware of what they look like and where they fit. Right. Um, and I made, they had a know, place. They had a specific, yes, yeah. Ex exactly. And I made, you know, I made a promise to myself, I'm never going to allow my kids to grow up in an environment like that, where they feel, whether it be something that's implicit that they're unaware of or something that's explicit what they're mm -hmm. aware of. I never want to have my kids grow up in an environment where they feel that they're inferior or they can't do it because, or they have a certain place in society. Um, and then one of the other things that I always talk about with friends is that, you know, the, what's the saying, um, Southern hospitality, it's full on there. It's a real thing, mm -hmm. but I always, my experience is, and I don't know, I didn't get it bad, right? Like I'm a Southern California kid and they, people kind of knew that when I spoke, I'll tell you a funny story about it. Um, but, I always say Southern hospitality, but there's an asterisk or there's a fine print. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'd get this, like I'd feel this and I'd see this, but just on something as simple as, you know, I like to eat, right? And we talk about, mm -hmm. you know, my affinity for different types of foods. That region has some of the best food of all time, mm -hmm. like absolutely ridiculous. Um, but we'd go to like the sticks, like me and my graduate school buddies, like one of my best buddies from graduate school is from New York. And so, you know, we kind of have similar ways of thinking about life, right? Cause he grew up in New York and I grew up in Southern California. And then I had another buddy who uh, grew up in a super small town in Missouri. And then another one that um, was from Wisconsin. Wow. Um, and then I had another like another student friend who was born and raised in china and was only in wow. the u.s right was only in the u.s to go to graduate school wow and then i had and then i had another um student friend who was from germany it was the same but he was german but the german was blonde haired blue eyed um and then my buddy from new york funny thing is that he's 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 a hapa he's half caucasian and uh half chinese mm -hmm. but if you look at him you wouldn't he doesn't he probably looks a little bit more caucasian than asian mm -hmm. and so we go out to the sticks and we go out to these restaurants and i just kind of see like it's nothing like overtly 
overt or anything like that, but you just kind of see how they interacted with, you know, the white, my white friends and how I got interacted with and um, how the Chinese national got interacted with. Right. And it's wow. nothing like, it's nothing that's over the top, nothing that you'd see in a movie right. where, you know, they're making us eat outside or, you know, they're <laughs> whatever it is. We have it a table near the dumpster over here. Yeah. It was, wasn't like that. It's all, it's all like really subtle stuff. Um, so it's a, it a fantastic experience. I felt like super welcomed when we go to the places, when we go to the, when we go to the, all black neighborhoods and we go to the all black restaurants that's where i felt super welcome yeah i mean they that's where i felt like dude like i feel like this is my my grand aunt or something like that yeah you know they welcome us with open arms i remember one time me and my buddy were were in uh super cool it was it was a all black neighborhood all black restaurant and we walk in and it was like literally it's like the music stopped. It felt like the music stopped and everybody's looking at us. And the, the major, go help them Chinese boy over there. <laughs> and See it, what they want for eating for dinner. And it wasn't like, and it was a different experience because it, it was like, you obviously have people who aren't local and they're not regulars. And you kind of stick out like sorry. It was very different for them. But we sat down and guys came from the other table. They sat down with us and they started asking us where we're from, asking us about our background goes to the back to get the cooking owner to come down and sit with us. And then all That's of a sudden amazing. we're like having like a fantastic, fantastic sign. So I felt like in those environments, I felt a lot more welcome um, in those environments than I did in some of the, um, you know, the ultra, ultra white environments. So that, that's the reason that I, I played that song, um, the Freedom Riders song, the sit-ins and why I spoke about Selma is because I love black culture. I'm fascinated with black culture and black people and what they've been through to get where they're at. And um, so in general, I just have a lot of love and respect for their culture, as I know you do. Uh, but it actually, uh, hearing what you said over the last few minutes kind of brought up a question of why you decided to go to grad school and get your Ph.D. in Louisiana as opposed to somewhere uh, different you know, yeah, or somewhere that's closer to your comfort zone. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So there's different types of grad school, right? There's types of grad school where you learn how to be a doctor or a dentist. And in, typically in those grad schools, you go to anywhere that's going to take you. And if you're in the fraction of the 0.001%, then you can choose where you go. Um, but most of the time, if you're getting into one of those schools, you just go wherever that's going to take you. Um, those are kind of what I call pre-professional grad schools. Um, more academic grad schools where you're getting PhDs in a specific area. Those are very different from undergrad. It's not like you go in undergrad, you go, oh, I want to go to the best school. And you might say, oh, I want to go to Stanford or Harvard. You don't do that for, for a graduate school when you're getting your PhD. You do it based on who, who you want to study with and who's doing the research in the specific area. So I didn't go, I didn't go, okay, I want to go to the best you know, best school for motor learning control. I mean, Stanford and Harvard don't even really have it. You find out who's doing the best research in the area and who's doing research that matches what you want to study. And you just go and find that advisor and you go to wherever that advisor is. So my PhD advisor at the time was at LSU. So I went to go study with him. Um, that was who um, I was fortunate with to study with two of the four fathers in the field 
in the field. One in undergrad is my undergraduate advisor, and he recommended that I study with my PhD advisor. So he was at LSU at the time, although now he's at Columbia University teaching, mm -hmm. teaching there. But basically, you you don't pick, you don't choose the school, you choose the advisor. Okay, and the advisor yeah. was at LSU. Yeah, he was at LSU at the time. Okay, so you okay, and he was for your program, but that still doesn't explain. So then you had to go to the school that he was at because he was there. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, right. so I chose the schools that I had in mind were schools that I'd never entertained in undergrad. Um, because in undergrad, you're not looking for one specific person to study with. But mm -hmm. when you're getting your PhD or master's for that matter, you're going to study with a specific person. Um, and so he was there. Okay. If I would if I would apply now, I'd be applying to Columbia because he's at Columbia right now. Um, oh, okay. He moved yeah. schools. Yeah. So he retired from oh, okay. his academic position, but then he took um, after shortly after he retired, he um, well he moved to New York City because his wife is the um, is the director of in the School of Dance at NYU, and so he moved there to be with his wife. And, um, and then he took on a uh, adjunct teaching position at Columbia. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So now I get it. I, I had no idea how that worked. Probably because I never thought about getting a doctorate before. And that's probably because I just graduated from undergrad less than six months ago. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's a whole other story. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to make sure I was over the age of 52 before I graduated. That was it. Hey, man, if, you, if you're going to school, you're doing, you're doing yourself. A good thing. Um, I always, yeah. always, you know, people always talk about, oh, like Bill Gates never went to, never completed university, um, or, you know, LeBron James never, never went to college. These are outliers. And, yeah, and they'll pick people like that, and I'm like, you must think seriously high of yourself if you think that you're Bill Gates, where you don't need to go to university. <laughs> Right. No, yeah, I, I disagree. I know I saw a 60-minute thing on some guy who was super successful in business and said that people don't need to go to um, don't need to go to school, uh, college, you know, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, in fact, I heard the other day uh, for this government position that I'm interested in, the boss came in the office and started talking about a master's degree in and it's, it's, it's a discriminator. I mean, you either yeah. have a master's or you don't. Or one of the guys that, uh, that I sort of uh, look up to just finished his second master's. Yeah. Um, and that's how it is. I mean, that's how it is with, you know, former Air Force government enlisted dudes. Not yeah. talking about, you know, Air Force research lab dudes, you know, that are over at, at Albuquerque that are, you know, have a... A PhD like yourself, not those types of guys. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't does it doesn't negate the fact that people are successful and don't have formal educations, right? There are people who are successful and don't have um, a college degree, like they just have a high school degree. But if you're a, if you're a teenager, you want to you, I would hope you would think of know the probabilities, right? And you got to play the probabilities. So, is it probable that you'll be more successful? with a college degree, that statistics would say yes. Um, and so you just gotta look at the probabilities and give yourself the best chance, especially this day and age. If baseball players are using probability to win games, basketball players using probabilities to win games. I don't wanna talk three point shot. 
I didn't want to go there. <laughs> you should yeah, you should do that with your life. You should be doing probability stupid in your life. Your life decisions. No, I'm I'm with you. Um I am all about I'm all about that. Um and I would tell anybody out there, don't I don't I don't even necessarily care. I mean Shaq went back to LSU and graduated. Do you guys think that Shaq needs a degree? I mean, he promised his fa- uh, his stepfather, Sergeant Phil Harrison, that he was going to go back and get his degree. And then after he was in the NBA and he was with the Lakers, he went back and got his degree. So it's that simple. Um, you, no matter what you're going into, actually, we're about this. Actually, will will be a nice segue into a guest that's going to be coming up on the show. Not tonight, but I'm going to schedule with her. Uh, and that is a motorcycle racer. Um, I hate. To, I guess I could say she's a professional motorcycle racer as a fourteen-year-old. <laughs> so we're talking about none other than Kayla Yakov. Um, you see the photo there, Will, that I put in the chat. Yeah, Can you open it? Oh, you did open it. Yeah, I okay. did open it. Um, Kayla Yakov. I can only tell it's a 14. Well, I can't even tell it's a 14 year old, but I can only tell it's a, well, a girl because of her braided ponytail. Well, um, yeah. And there's uh, actually, I have another, another one that I got today that'll kind of um, show you without her helmet. She was on this. Uh, oh, here it is. American. But I just say that because she looks like she's ridiculously skilled. Oh my goodness. Okay. So let's talk about how skilled. So I showed you guys a photo of me at the track the other day. Ironically, Kayla was at the track that day. And I showed it to a friend. So a friend of mine that you haven't met yet, but he may end up coming on the show, is a immigrant from Cuba, an extremely poor person that had one pair of clothes that he wore for a year. You know, this kind of a dude. His name is uh, Carlos De La Torre. Carlos is a dentist now in Orlando, and his passion is riding uh, track riding motorcycles like I do, except he is the fastest dentist (laughs) east of the Mississippi. Um, My friend Justin is 10 seconds faster than me going around this track, and Carlos is probably easily 10 seconds fast. Well, five seconds faster than Justin, which... In, in, in a, you know, a, a minute and a half track, you know, fast time, that's a lot. So, <laughs> so um, Carlos looked at my photo and sh- told me what I was doing wrong in that photo I sent to you and Nick. When I look at Kayla, she is doing exactly what Carlos told me I should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> and to see this young lady at the track, people, so this is Kayla Yakov. The daughter of David Yakov, who was a professional racer, he is now her everything. He is her coach. He is her uh, uh, crew chief, mechanic, uh, drive, drives the RV from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, all the way to Jennings, Florida, so that she can train when it's cold. And what I want to tell you guys is to see this young lady out at the track, 14 years old, and the magnetism of her personality that guys that race motorcycles, men, you know, macho guys that would run you off the track are gravitated to come and talk to Kayla and find out her opinion about something or get her reaction to something 
or just to 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 be near her to talk to her because she's so technical and so good at this sport that while Justin might be running a 131 and Carlos might be running a 125 this girl's running like a 120 you know and like i said 5 seconds <laughs> it's a lot man it's a lot on a on a track like this and i'll you know i'll, I'll make sure i fill you in but uh, just at the outset, Will, what's, you know, without having studied it, and I know you'll probably, you know, do just a little bit of research into these MotoGP guys, what is it that, that, that enables a girl to do that? Well, when you're thinking about, when you were talking about it earlier, and you're comparing the, the dentist times to your times, um, I always look at, I'm always fascinated by the, the skill-based sport activities. And what I mean by the skill-based sport activities is they're the activities where you do not say, oh, you can play because you're 6'3", 230 pounds, right? So you have, I'll take football, American football, for example. Yes, there's skill associated with American football. But when you compare it with other sports, it's not heavily weighted on skill. It's weighted on physical attributes. So... If you're ever in a sporting activity and you say, all right, to play at the highest levels, you have to be a certain height or certain weight or certain strength, um, and then it's not so skill-based. But in, from how you describe it, um, obviously, if you're too tall, that might be a disadvantage. Um, but generally, there's some space for you to work around. I, I'd imagine you want to be a certain weight just because a little less weight on the bike is going to be make the bike go a little bit faster. But I mean, there's still a broad category, right? You, when you compare it to other sports. And so when I think about it, I was like, dude, that's like that type of like motor driving a car or riding a motorcycle is very skill-based in nature. And I think about some of the skill requirements that are associated, associated with it. And so um, like in golf, I'm going to take golf as an example. If you can manipulate that club really well, mm -hmm. swing as fast as you want to swing it and put it in the place that you want to swing, you're going to be good in golf. And the bike is the same way, is the same thing. You need to be able to manipulate that, manipulate that bike in a certain manner to have it do certain things. And on top of that, which makes it a little bit, makes it very different from golf, is the fact that there's a predictive nature associated with 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 motorcycle racing. Um, the predictive nature is where is this person in front of me or behind me or on the side of me going to be in the next time point? Wow. And based on where they're going to be in the next time point, I need to make some decisions about this, right? Much like that in fighting, mm -hmm. right? You're going to, you're, you're, you're getting to know your environment and your environment gives you an answer to what's going to occur next. And your, your ability to be able to evaluate that correctly first and then be able to time up what you need to do in the right timing components of what the environment is giving you is going to be that skill base that's maybe her dad is taught maybe her dad has taught her that maybe she's just experienced it at a really young age mm -hmm. or maybe she's experienced it and didn't know but since her dad was so experienced her dad was able to pinpoint this is valuable for you to look at right that other writers don't get um, so she gets that, but then she can manipulate a bike extremely well. 
like you show me the you show me the the picture of her she's got to be able to position herself on that bike to be able to do something specific to that bike so the bike can perform a certain way and so these are all things that you can learn right these that's what we mean by skill there's things that you can learn and develop um and then outside of you know this wide bandwidth of of anthropometrics or physical characteristics you can get really good at it um, so so we're gonna i mean we're gonna cover this after she comes on if i i may record it at a time when you're not available so we're gonna react to it yeah uh, i might i might be reacting to it with you after the fact but basically what i'm gonna ask you when it's all said and done uh is can somebody of her strength level go to moto gp and will it not matter if she is has less physical strength and to be able to go and 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 win or even get to moto gp you know moto gp has one the, the main one and then two and three yeah. so can she yeah i just look at like when you say physical strength and i don't know the sport it's actually mm-hmm. dj didn't DJ, you can verify for everybody. D- we didn't pre-show this question. No, no. I just gave you. No, one, so I, that's why I'm going to want you yeah. to like analyze it in the yeah. you know in the next week or so. But I kind of look at uh, strength from the standpoint. Are there different types of strength? So if you look at an endurance athlete, they obviously have muscular endurance. It's a type of strength. And then you look at a power lifter; they actually have muscular strength too. It's just the absolutely the amount of weight that they can lift so i don't know of the physical demands associated with the highest levels of you know of of racing i don't know what if it's an absolute strength or an endurance if it's more associated with like an type of endurance Mm -hmm. i think she's gonna it's i wouldn't look at being a female as a disadvantage if it's that type of, of that of strength that's needed but if it's like Dude, she needs to be able to bench press and and squat this amount it's because not, the bike no. does this to her. Yeah, then then I don't. That's not the case, and it's not intentionally in activity where there's contact. And even if there is contact, I don't know the amount of strength. I don't know. I'm not familiar with. There's it. not a you, there's yeah. not a strength component really. It's. Yeah, so. I mean, if somebody's leaning the bike into you, they're not. Um, there, there's times that they touch one another. It's not all the time. It's not every yeah. lap, but it does happen. And I don't believe it's strength. If you were to look at these athletes, Will, I think you would say I'm looking at a bantam weight yeah. or a featherweight. Uh, yeah. And, then, and when I say that, I mean on weight on the scale, not. Yeah. She, she just needs to meet the threshold of kind of, you know, the kind of absolute strength. If she meets that threshold, then I don't think being a female is is a disadvantage for her. it seems to me like it's going to be more relied on more of a muscular endurance mm-hmm. and if that's the case no i you, you know i don't i don't think it, i don't see it being a huge disadvantage for her. It, it i mean i can tell you in the last year some of the best shape i've been in doing like seven laps or something is is very tiring uh yeah. for me and that's probably due to a lack of skill you know, also, yeah. I'm working harder to try to do what, what she makes look easy. So there is, I believe it is an endurance thing. These guys, yeah. um, like if you see uh, the, the, the premier guys are like, 
and I'll look for like an academic paper on this so that you can analyze that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mark Marquez, I mean, these are 135, 140 pound guys that are always on, when they're not on the track, it seems like they're always on a bicycle yeah. and they're doing workouts that are, you know, based around that. And are, like you said, muscular endurance. They're yeah, not it looking seemed, to. It would seem to me like you almost, it's almost like jockey like. Yes. In horse racing. Yes. Um, that's how I would kind of guess. Yep. That's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. Just their upper body, um, you know, the, the jockey, you know, he's putting a little bit of pressure, but with, uh, with the riding, you know, it's a lot of, you know, the handlebars and you have to, you have to get up out of a squat and you can see the position that she's in and you have to move yourself over. So there's a lot of stress on your, that those muscles right above your knees and your quads to get like that. And then to flip back over and come to the other side. And yeah. then and that's what tires me out is, is, is a lot of this. So if you're not doing uh, air squats, <laughs> you know, if you don't have ability to, to crunch your knees up real small and be able to have your your backside basically just barely touching that saddle. Yeah. You know. So anyway, and we're it, gonna it, we're I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, I was gonna say it was like in the it's good that you bring in the skill level component because it's just like in jujitsu. Um, the black belts or higher level belts, they know how much grip to apply or how much force to apply. And they, you know, if you're really good, you just apply the right amount instead of the maximal amount. Yeah. But when you're a beginner at stuff, you normally, because you don't know the right amount, you typically produce more than you should. Um, and that's often the case. And usually as beginners too, you do what's called a lot of co-contraction. Um, around a joint so that's going to consume a lot of that's going to be a, a heavier workload on you too did you say coke i don't, I don't, I don't yeah, even coke. need to get into that <laughs> um so kayla yakov she will be on with us i'm going to schedule in with her this week um she's obviously a school kid she's in the eastern time zone she's out of gettysburg pennsylvania and so i may have to adjust times beyond what you guys can do but I will get it done, and and um, and I may even uh, bring on another motorcycle guy to ask her questions. Someone that's smarter than I am. Um, Kayla Yaka, fifty-one championships, fifteen national championships, and four hundred podiums. Which, for those of you who aren't that familiar with racing, means four hundred podiums means she fit she finished either third, second, or first. So <laughs> that's pretty good for fourteen-year-old. So, yeah, um, it. and she wants to be the first uh, woman to ride MotoGP. And just I want to give you guys just a really quick idea of what we're talking about here. There's a guy named Cameron Bobier who rode in Moto America, which is the highest level of motorcycle racing in the continental U.S. He rode super bikes. So I think it was a thousand cc bikes he was riding, I believe. This dude was phenomenal. He would run away within the first lap. He would build like a five-second lead. And and I just watch him race after race. You'd be like, I wonder how much Bobier is going to win by. And then it would the race would be for second and third and things like that. Because Bobier was just running away from people. Okay, he got signed to MotoGP 3, just to give you guys an idea. So a guy who ran away... With a superbike championship here, will not ride MotoGP one with Valentino Rossi and Mark Marquez and uh, 
Maverick, Vinales, etc., he's going to be riding two levels below that. That just gives you an idea of what the level is at MotoGP. You know what they need for MotoGP? They need the Netflix equivalent to Formula One. Yes, yes. So I didn't know. Absolutely. I mean, I was the most least interested person in Formula in in car racing. Mm-hmm. Probably less interested in car racing than soccer. And I saw uh, F one on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I love watching that show. And then my my son's like super into F one. He knows all the F one dudes and all the. I mean, it sounds like they need something like that to kind of they do demonstrate the demonstrate the you know you could say the beauty or the difficulty oh, or the brilliance yeah. of the sport. Yeah, and I will. I'm gonna send you uh, some. Uh, I'm gonna send you some highlights of Mark Marquez. This guy is just. It's absurd. I mean, guys used to. Um, there was a time when, when you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, you can see we they, we wear knee sliders now with guys like Mark Marquez. They're using elbow sliders <laughs> because the elbow. So you have a slider on the elbow because that's touching the track. So yeah. it's not just your knee now. I mean, that's how outrageous that's Mark Marquez is. And I'll send it to you on our uh, our group chat as as well. So anyway, we got to get to MMA, Will. But I think before we do that, there was something jujitsu related uh, that you wanted to talk about, and I don't want to uh, I don't want to steal any thunder away. It basically uh, revolves around a fight uh, or a scuffle between um, multi level champion, uh, multiple time no gi champion Gordon Ryan. Uh, jiu-jitsu bad boy uh, and more of traditionalist in uh, Andre Galvao a guy who fought a little bit of MMA figured out it wasn't for him but he has uh, made quite a career for himself in grappling um, so go ahead why don't you uh, talk about that incident and what your thoughts are yeah man I get there is uh, there is a jiu-jitsu no-gi competition and Andre Galvao wasn't even wasn't even competing or fighting. It was Gordon Bryan Galvao was coaching one of his up and young, new up and comer thoroughbreds, I guess. And it's funny because the, the, the jujitsu fights themselves weren't the, by no means the big story is what happened afterwards. And apparently if you haven't seen it um, after the fight, uh, Galvao and Gordon Ryan get in a verbal altercation and they're in the back, and Gordon Ryan right hand slaps Galvao in the face. Galvao and, uh, was kind of getting up in his face, so they're well, walking through those banquet rooms because one of the banquet rooms has the whole interview set up. So they're walking through sort of a darkened, unused room to get to the room that has the lights, the cameras, and uh, the recording equipment where they're going to do post-fight interviews. Yeah, and Galba actually started started it because he pushed Gordon Ryan first, and then in response to the push, Gordon Ryan slaps Galba in the face. And I think Galba even started it even prior to that because after the fights were done, Gordon Ryan, everybody shakes hands, right? The athlete shakes hand with each other, and then you shake the hand of the opposing coach. And um, Gordon Ryan was going to go shake Galba's hand, and Gord- and he gets and Andre Galba flips him off. And then it 
carries over into the in the backstage press conference area and Galval goes up to Gordon Ryan and obviously um, Galval's upset for some reason. Because he's been pumped by this guy. Because there's been a lot of talk um, back and forth between them. So he's constantly shouting, you need to demonstrate some respect. So we push Gordon Ryan and then Gordon Ryan slaps him. Then Gordon Ryan's sitting down for the interview and Galval comes, see sitting down for his interview. Galval comes back into the picture, starts yelling at Gordon Ryan and then Gordon Ryan rushes Galval again, and uh, they don't contact each other, but you have a lot of people breaking it up. So that's kind of, those are kind of the events of what happened. And I guess when, I, when we first spoke about it, DJ, I was looking at it from a couple different points of view. The first point of view is, all right, let's just dissect, is this WWE? And they're trying to promote um, a potential future fight and gain a bigger purse for themselves, gain more interest, um, because they're supposed to fight in the ADCC um, super fight. Is that what they call it? A super fight, the one mm-hmm. at the, ver- the very end? Yeah. Um, they're supposed to fight in ADC super fight, but Galval said that he may or may not fight in that, and apparently he wants like a large sum. Some people would say a million dollars. Yeah, so that I just yeah. posted. I just posted it for you. Gordon Ryan said he'll bet one million to Galval's five hundred thousand. So, and he's made other in prior years. He's made other offers to him. He just um, yeah. I, Gal, bottom line is Galval doesn't think he's going to beat him, and he doesn't want to fight the guy. I mean, it's that simple. And my initial question to DJ was: Is this, is this WWE? Or are they just trying to, you know, um, increase the increase the pot, get more people interested? And my answer was. Your answer no. was absolutely no. Absolutely not. No, um, that was that was real. What you saw was real. And then the other, the other one, the other option would be okay. Let's say it's not real. Then you have Andre Galval, who's probably one of the best sport jujitsu guys, Hall of Famer, right? Killing um, you, he's yeah. a Hall of Famer. Yeah. yeah. In the sport, excellent tactician. Say what you want about how he gets so athletically superior to other people but regardless he's still being he's still being in a lot of people in jiu-jitsu i don't uh, i don't think it's competitions i don't think it's necessary athletically it's that he took drugs he looks like he took drugs to get big because he was always athletic and he was always skilled but then yeah. all of a sudden he started looking like he was like didn't he fight cyborg abreu i mean he like went from like 160 pound guy to like a 215 pound guy. So I yeah. don't know, you know. And so he's, he's, he runs, he's runs the autos, the entire autos organization. Correct. Mm-hmm. Which have a, a variety of affiliates. And so if it's not WWE and it's something legitimate is what is he doing acting like that? What is he doing? Flipping off Gordon Ryan, not shaking his hand post fight, mm-hmm. regardless of what Gordon Ryan says. What is he doing aftermath pushing Gordon Ryan? Now, do I agree? I think I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Gordon Ryan's approach to promote, promoting himself. Um, but Andre Galval, knowing who he is in the sport of jiu-jitsu and what he means to his organization and the people that look up to him, the people that he mentors, like, what is he doing? He made himself so... He took a lot of the credibility they had and he made himself at once look like a poor sport, look like a baby. And quite frankly, I mean, any of us 
that gets slapped in the face by another guy and doesn't end up fighting that guy, if it was me, if it were you, if it's Andre Galvao, you're going to look pretty bad. I mean, unless you're like seriously wounded, like when Half Gracie uh, sucker punched um, Flavio. Flavio Almeida or something like that, where you've got like teeth falling out and blood in your mouth and, and you need to go and get medical attention or something. Beyond a situation like, and by the, and you know, and Half Gracie's had professional fights and Valley Tudo and all that kind of stuff, and Fli- um, and um, Flavio Almeida hasn't. So, well, regardless, he was, regardless, was defenseless. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. He was in. A, <laughs> he wasn't even looking. Yeah, and he was in a situation where uh, once he got hit, you know, he he probably needed to seek medical attention straight away. So beyond situation like that. You know, uh, Galvao needed to respond, and he didn't. So he probably looks like an idiot to his students. He doesn't look like a martial artist. He doesn't look like he probably trains enough. Uh, what what my professor would say here at Gracie Academy is enough combatives training. You know, basically what what you would call fundamentals at uh, Gracie Baja, and uh, and it doesn't look good. It just well, overall it doesn't look. He made he found a way to make Gordon Ryan look good. <laughs> one of the things that's shameful about it and i know one of the things that the gracie baja organization is doing better than anyone and there's no argument for this they are doing it better than anyone is that they're making jujitsu professional and what i mean by professional like a professional business so if you can open up your own academy and open it up like you're a like an entrepreneur, a businessman, right? And taking away, oh, is this just a club and we just get together and have fun? They're making a business out of jujitsu. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way to where you can have a long career in jujitsu. You can open up an academy that's run in a professional manner, um, that's run a specific way. And so I just kind of look at it as he runs, uh, Andre Galval runs an organization. He runs Atos. A big organization. So just imagine, you know, imagine you imagine Bill Gates or Elon Musk doing something similar. Like, doesn't happen. No. Like, they're that, professionals. He, he put himself, he willingly put himself in a situation with another guy. Like, he, first of all, he disrespected him. I didn't realize what you just said, is that he was, that Gordon Ryan was fighting one of his athletes in jiu-jitsu, and that after the match, he was just going to, the the obligatory handshake. No, you know, Craig Jones fought Gordon or uh, Andre Galval's. After. Right. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. But the coaches will go and shake hands, yeah. right? Or right. the corner guys, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So something so innocuous, he could have just shook his hand and walked away. Totally. And, and instead, he created a situation with a guy who definitely has some of that Jersey street tough in him, obviously. And he got punked by that guy, and it's very—it's a silly way and reason to put yourself in that situation, unless you—you know—you're ready to accept the guy's thing and step on the mat, which a lot of guys don't want to do. You know, it will take somebody like Fabrizio Verdum, of in, in terms of you know like a, uh, these high-profile guys, because Fabrizio Verdum don't care about nothing. He's not afraid of anybody, and he doesn't care how good his jiu-jitsu is. Fabrizio Vadum go out there with no hesitation at all. Obviously, Andre Galval has that hesitation. So he shouldn't have 
put on, try to put on a fake show and then shove the guy unless you're ready to fight that guy. Well, that, that's why you, you have to, it's got to be an viable option that it's the WWE. It's not. It's not. Route, that right? was a real reaction. You figure if he if it was real, he'd be ready. Um, you know, Brent Littell posted, um, he made a post about it where there's this actual type of behavior where you kind of freeze. Even though you're well-trained, you freeze in the moment. Um, you could probably ask him online or something sure. like that. And he said, it's real. It happens. Um, so that could have been a possible cause if it's not the WWE route. But I just always go back and go, how unprofessional that is. It is. If you're running a professional organization, um, that is you're working against something much bigger, right? You're, or sorry, you're work, what you're trying to do as an organization and for the sport of jujitsu and for the people that you're employing and what you're trying to do for them, it's much bigger than a young jujitsu athlete talking smack and you not liking it. You have to be a lot better than that. First of all, Will, why did you not suggest having Brent on tonight? How did you fail me like that? Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I, we should have Brent on right now to talk about yeah. it. But instead, I'm not going to match your 401k for this period. Oh, How man. do you like that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. There goes that's your good. 5% match. Yeah, those anyway. goes that huge bonus at the end of the seat at the end of the, the, our podcast season. Along with your education benefits, you're going to pass on to Kingston. <laughs> that's beside the point. Shout out to Kingston, one of the guys. That's very, to... that's very Dana White of you. <laughs> it totally is. It is. Very Ramzan Kadyrov. All right, let's get to MMA. And I wanted to ask you because we're going to, we're going to, uh, this will be like our last topic. Do you want to cover UFC 259 or do you want to cover the uh, Kamzat Chemaev retirement? Dana well, says unretirement and then Kadyrov chimes in. Well, I want to talk about Kanzat, and then for the NBA component of the show, I would like to talk about the Jeremy Lin situation. Okay, yeah. So let's do that. Really important. So let's make some quick. Let's get. So let's make this a speed round. So, in terms of okay, so Kamzat Shemaev made a sort of a tearful tweet slash Instagram post, and I don't have it in front of me. That basically, his body was not recovering from COVID the way he wanted to. He couldn't train. And he basically said, I think I'm going to retire. So then Dana White comes out and says, ah, the kid's not retiring. He's going to come back. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> this is nothing here. And then, and then you know it when you know who you're aligned with and who your boys are. When Chechen dictator <laughs> Ramzan Kadyrov, <laughs> who denies people human rights, <laughs> comes on. And uh, where's that story? Um I'll bring up that story. We'll start. Basically, he had a yeah. he had a discussion with Kamzat, and ah. basically says that, "Oh, you mean a lot to the Russian people and the Chechenian people. Um, you can't retire." And convince I'm going to put this in air quotes. Convinces Kamzat to not retire, and so then uh, Kamzat apparently is not retiring after. That. <laughs> All quote right. unquote conversation. Okay, uh, and I don't think I'm you know. Gonna, I think I'm it's gonna, important. Maybe not a lot of people 
know who Kadyrov is, DJ. You're going to have to give us. I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to okay. do that. And I'm going to direct people to the real source, which is Kareem Zidane. But first, let me do some accents here. We ready? Here we go. Go for it. Okay. Uh, it says the promotion, quote, this uh, This is a Stephen Morocco story in MMA fighting. The promotion recently flew Chemaev uh, to the home city and according to White was prescribed a nasty fucking steroid, prednisone, an anti-inflammatory used to treat a variety of illnesses. He's not supposed to be training, but you know, this guy's a savage. He wants to fight like every fucking weekend and now he can't even train. So he just got emotional and posted that, but he ain't quitting, unquote. All right, so so Kadyrov... Now I got to go into my Kadyrov, uh, my Kadyrov accent. He says, um, Kadyrov uh, told uh, Chemayev that he, quote, upset the Chechenian people and millions of fans in Russia and around the world that were pinning hopes on his victory. During our conversation, Chemayev realized how important his career for every Chechen and promised to make every effort to recover as soon as possible. In the near future, he will fly to the Republic where he will complete a rehabilitation course, hold a training camp, and start training. Which, unquote, which I thought that uh, holding a training camp actually would be the start of training instead of holding a training camp to start training. But that's beside the point. I'm not going to argue with a with the Chechen dictator who will hook two jumper cables to his Ford F-350 and the other two to my testicles and then start the vehicle. So, <laughs> Yeah, man, you better look outside your, your window. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, Chairman no, I, Kadyrov. But I, like, well, wait, first of all, are you, know... you going to applaud at all? I mean, I just went through oh, that was super impressive. Accents. Okay. That was super impressive. I mean, the king is, is, is down below looking. I had to undo my headphones so we can hear, and you just had him really so super, at least the, at the very least super right, thank, uh, funny to an 11 year old thank you kingston that's my boy my former <laughs> training partner my trainee from gracie baja headquarters what's up holmes anyway go <laughs> I, ahead, think it's a, I think it's important to i don't know if people know who kadirayoff is but he's a not a he's a bad dude like not bad in the street lingo bad but bad is a not good guy yes he is basically, uh, yeah. And so when he has a quote-unquote conversation with you, uh, it's probably a little bit more of a, you're going to fight or else. Okay, and Will, just to that end, I will link in the show notes. I will find the latest Kareem Zidane piece on Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, which uh, he writes for Bloody Elbow, and I will link in the show notes. Uh, Kareem Zidane is basically the authority for anything that's going on in the Muslim world or anything tangential to the Muslim world and fight sports. So, oh, yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic piece, too. Very yeah. educational at the same time. But um, yeah, I guess he's I guess he's fighting again. What are the uh, <laughs> the the whether he wants that, to or not? <laughs> yeah, the article that you sent me. Let me let me. Um, it's the MMA. What's the MMA I, fighting? Yeah, it's probably Stephen Morocco. Um, um, 
I, it, I mean, it was poorly done in, term of, in terms of Kamzat's timeline for mm-hmm. infection and like when this all occurred. Because as I'm reading, I'm going, okay, what's the timeline for all of this, right? Because that matters. And it matters for a, when, when he's experiencing his symptoms, but apparently he's had recurring symptoms when he got better and then they recur again. Mm-hmm. So it's important to know that. And it's also important to know when where he was in the whole timeline of events with respect to what Dana White said. And so I thought that was, that was, I was, it was a bummer that the timeline was left out of that because then you can, we can speak a lot more about um, how COVID is affecting athletes. Yeah. And, uh, that's, a, that, that's actually where we'll be opening up a can of worms there that, would get deeper than we probably want to go suffice it to say that people who think that because and and so joe rogan because you think somebody's in shape and they're young and they work out that COVID's not going to fuck them up you're yeah. wrong so this yeah. this goes to show you because he's one of the toughest people in the world he's one of the most fit people in the world a guy who's literally not in camp that says oh yeah i can fight this weekend and make weight so yeah, and one of the major things that people were looking at or researchers were looking at um, when the NCAA was trying to come back were the heart effects associated long-term um, after COVID infection. And you may be good now, but it's just a matter of what you're going to be like later. And so some people just kind of, some people live in the now and they're less, they're going to deal with it when they're later on down the line. Right. But, and you, and you can't isolate for X because we don't know what strain he has. And if there's one thing that even meatheads like me who don't have a PhD or, or even a master's degree at this point have learned is that there are many different reactions to contracting this virus. And it's not, although there may be a trend towards if you're older you're going to have complications or, or, or could possibly die. Okay. I could say that's true, but there's, there's a spectrum of different things that happen. And just because you're in shape doesn't mean that. Yeah. And just from a scientific standpoint, if you, if you oversimplify it and say, Oh, you know, I got, I had COVID. It was like the flu. I'm over it now. I have antibodies. It's all good. I can go on like normal. Like if you say that that's, overly simple i think it's overly simplistic mm-hmm. and it um i mean this is something that is brand new to us I mean, science works in a way where if something's brand new we make the best guesses on how we should proceed based on the available data and as the data additional data comes in science you have the right to change how you what your recommendations are based on the data and so to I think the main point is scientists will tell you, like you speak with, you speak with people who study disease for a living. Like they're the, they're really, really intelligent people who know this really well. They're not the people in high school who are like, oh man, I don't need to go to college, right? <laughs> Bill Gates. They're, they're not the people in the lowest level science classes in high school or the lowest level math classes. These are the valedictorians, the quote unquote nerds that knew a lot that are, that are, that are studying this and saying, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. And so people to oversimplify, it makes it sound ludicrous 
for people to over, oversimplify it and say, oh, it's just like the flu or whatever. Like we don't know. And so I think the Kamzat story is a really good example. I mean, there was another story about the Florida State basketball kid who dropped, who basically dropped dead during a basketball game. Right. I and forgot he, about that. Yeah. yeah and he there's was, more. And, there's the baseball yeah. player also. There, there was. The... Yeah. And so like these are like we're in a time in which we're dealing with something that unfortunately we don't know. We're still dis- we're still we searching, right? And trying to find new new data about it. Um, you know, I feel bad for the dude, like the dude being Kamzat, because he works in a he he works in an organization where the head guy is um, it's kind of like a ruler. He he runs that thing like he's he's Ramzan uh, Kadyrov, like a monarchy <laughs> type of thing. And then he lives in a country that is. Big. Yeah. Is, oh, I'm is, sorry. I uh, thought you meant Dana. You were mi- analogizing Dana. To yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess they're one and the same kind of thing. Or Mo- like Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, he's under two guys that yeah. are that are heavy-handed in their points of views and how they like things done. And um, like, I feel bad for the dude because, man, I don't think that dude doesn't have a choice to fight. Like, he's got to fight, and who knows what he's like physically. I feel bad for you, Will, because. You have to come on here on this show and argue with a guy with a community college education. I mean, it's there's there's no reason you should have to do that. Like you should, yeah. I. It's funny people have people have more of a quote unquote formal education than you do in talking about this type of stuff. But you, you're the smarter one to talk to about it. That's not true. But anyway, some uh, people some people pay attention. Some people don't pay attention. <laughs> You cannot I, pay attention. Work your way through school. I um. So I I, I put in the sh- I put I will put in the show notes and I posted for you guys. Uh, and all apologies to Stephen Morocco because I love his work also. But when it comes to these topics, it's at Zidane Sports on Twitter. So that's at Z I D A N S P O R T S Kareem Zidane, and uh, his piece is on Bloody Elbow. And he's going to have the definitive piece, so that's the one that I'm going to read before I go to bed tonight. Um, and he's written a number of pieces about not only Ramzan. Oh, this so good. You're going to have to message me this to. I uh, did. I, I did. It, it's on. Oh, your oh, this is the bloody elbow. Okay. Yeah, oh, sweet. Yeah, I can't. I'm too. all over it. Will I'm doing the production. <laughs> I'm doing the hosting. Dude, I'm doing the. He's so good. That first piece that I wrote. Um, Kareem's first piece that he wrote, yeah, it was so good, like entertaining and informative at this, like at the same time, informative more than just about the topic at hand. But it was, man, you can call it like whether it be a history course, a political science course, a public affairs or world affairs course, dude. That was that was well, so fascinating to me. What so he excited to read this article. What he couched it was really interesting, and I'm going to point this to you, Khabib fans out there. Uh, and there's a lot of, I mean, we're to an, you know, to some degree, we're Khabib fans. I know Will is, I know I am. What, what Kareem Zidane, what I was educated listening to him talk on radio about this, and I'd like to get him on the show, but I guarantee you his phone is just burning off the hook right now with everybody wanting him on every show. Uh, but I would love to have him on at some point. And if for nothing else, he could, you know, tell me about my Kadirov accent, but um, 
honestly, what he talked about is, <laughs> I know, I know, I could like be die, but if you know, if I end up getting killed tomorrow, is really nice doing a show with you, um, <laughs> and roll and rolling with you at Gracie Academy. Bye, Kingston. But anyway, um, what Gracie Baja, not Gracie Academy. Oh, oh, Felipe, <laughs> Felipe is gonna man. He's gonna just slap me in the face, Gordon Ryan hey, style, man. because hey, man, know your know your Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Academy. Man. I know. I love you, Professor Felipe. Don't please don't. Yeah, don't think anything that I didn't mean that. Um, but uh, one of the interesting things that he talked about was Khabib's relationship with Kadyrov and how it might not be as clear cut because somebody like me, some meathead might say, well, you know, Khabib, why are you cavorting with Ramzan Kadyrov in, you're from Dagestan, he's from Chechnya, it's a neighboring country in the Caucasus, our neighboring region, if you will, they're all part of the Russian Federation, but he said, you know, there's, there could be, there's political pressure. What Khabib says or does or show event that he shows up for with Chechnya matters in Dagestani politics. In, and in the you I mean the the operational definition of the term politics and political between how we use it in this country and how DJ is referring it in that region is entirely different. Correct, DJ. Right? Yeah, uh when yeah, we talk well, like about it says, oh, it's the activities of governments yes. Uh, yeah, the, we, the, we, the first definition here is the activities of governments concerning the political relations between countries. Yeah, so, but how we, term, yeah. how we interpret it in the U.S. is, oh, it's the political. Pejorative. People, it's pejorative. Yeah, yeah. yeah people yeah. think it's like Republican, Democrat, Democrat conservative, liberal, right? That's what people are thinking about. But in the context of how Khabib has to deal with that in that region, it's not whether you're a Democrat or, <laughs> no. or liberal no. or conservative. It's a matter of death and war. Uh, yeah, there could be a trade deal that doesn't go through that Dagestan needs from Chechnya. And I'm setting up a, you know, a scenario that's fictitious, but there's probably something like this where right. if Khabib did not attend uh, a dinner or an event that he was invited to or said, I'm not going to take your Mercedes... Uh, might not go through yeah and it could go to another yes it could go through another caucus uh another country in the caucuses rather so yeah um so when kareem has explained that that's not to absolve khabib of any responsibility for anything he does and i'm not well read and on enough uh, i'm not well read on it enough to make an argument either way but what i do want you to take from it is a read up on it and know from somebody that that knows and has studied these figures meaning khabib and people like kadirov and their respective countries both of them are muslim uh, based in the muslim faith and um so kareem knows that and that there is a component of it of khabib visiting and accepting gifts and attending events that goes a lot has a much broader implication, if you will, than just, hey, I think I'll go there because that guy's going to give me an S63. So, <laughs> so anyway. All right, Willoughby, let's move to UFC 259, right? You want to get to that and just pick a couple of fights. 
uh, Blockowitz, uh, Jan Blockowitz at 27 and 8, taking on Israel Adesanya at 20 and 0. Look at that, baby. Me. In the main event of the evening. And we're only going to do like, we're only going to pick a couple of fights. Actually, this top of this card is really good, man. Yeah, it's I think not bad, I'm gonna huh? buy this one. Um, so what do you think about Jan Blockowitz? The Polish power, Nick, was explicit today that uh, he is not going to fall prey. He's picking Izzy. What say you, my brother, from another? Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with Nick, but I'd probably ask you first is what's, uh, what's Jan's game going to be based on his past his past fighting strategies and what do you think it's going to be with Izzy? But I got to go with Izzy, man. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I would think that Jan will try to crowd Izzy. I believe he's going to try to pursue. He wants to crowd him. He doesn't want him to give him space to set his feet and start to set up kicks. Either that leg kick, because right now you got to be thinking with the trends that's going on in MMA, not only did he leg kick, um, I think he uh, nearly leg kick finished Paulo Costa, but he's probably working on a calf kick. And you have to imagine he's going to do that. So I know Blockowitz is thinking about a counter. He has a lot of power in his hands. I mean, there's no two ways about that. He has a lot of power. This guy can take you out with his hands. Um, so I would think that he wants to crowd Izzy. I would want to clinch with Izzy 100%. And I would want to make slow this fight down, take it in the mud, and get him, try to get... Uh, Izzy's feet walking through honey and molasses. So that's that's how I think. If I'm picking Izzy, I'm picking Izzy because I think he's going to be able to land enough kicks to hurt Jan. Jan won't be able to get inside, and if that happens, then uh, it'll be a slow and painful death. Well, if his uh, if Jan's strategy is anything related to stand up, I'm going with Izzy. <laughs> well, it might be stand up, but man, he better be thinking about. He better be thinking about making this a multi-tiered fight. He needs to be able to get inside at any cost. He has to be able to get inside and get a clinch going with Izzy. Yeah. That's the only place. And and you're probably going to, if he does that, probably going to see Izzy foot stomp. He watches Usman. He's friends with Usman. You're probably going to see foot stomps. So. He also, <laughs> I don't know if this helps him or not, but he also was rolling in autos with, Andre Gavala. Oh, okay. Well, I guarantee if Izzy gets slapped, if Gordon Ryan slapped Izzy like that, he would be eating probably a straight left or right hand before he could even get out of the way. But that's I'm waiting for you to him. get to, let me see, the fourth fight in the card because I'm excited about that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. So next down, well, let's go to uh, Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. Peter Yan made a very unfortunate Instagram video of uh, a person he approached in the street who appeared like perhaps he was homeless, a black person, and was calling him Aljo. And it was in very poor taste, very stupid. Oh, and geez. Aljo, I well, first of all, let me tell you reasons I like Aljo. First of all, he's from New York. Second of all, he's Jamaican. Oh, how did I skip over Amanda Nunes and Megan Anderson? Okay, I'm, Amanda, pi I'm picking Amanda Nunes. Okay, yeah. So, so there you go. Yeah, we're both picking you, Amanda. One love, uh, Nordestina, Amanda Nunes. Um, 
Uh, she's from the same city as our, uh, our professor, Professor Fabio Machado, which is Bahia Salvador. Salvador Bahia. So, um, Peter Jan against Sterling. I love Aljamain Sterling's hair. And I think, in my mind, that's going to be the difference in this fight is that Aljamain's afro is just classic. It's beautiful. It, it looks like it's not, you know, Dr. J level or something like that. But he has a great afro. And no, seriously, though, his game, I love his game. He's developed so well ever since he beat my friend Barao. Um, with his clinch, his wrestling, um, he's using all the different strikes, but he's making his takedown game and his grappling the centerpiece of his game. And I don't know that Peter Jan can stop him and can handle that. So I'm going with Aljamain Sterling. What do you say, brother? Well, just after the Peter Jan story, I'm going to Aljamain. <laughs> I know. What a, what, a, what a clown. What an absolute clown that has no sense. And by the way, Khabib at one point, uh, I don't know if it was downtown L.A. He tried paying two bums to fight or something like that, something very uncalled for. So um, uh, it's not only um, it's not only people like Jan. I know Khabib's come a long way since then, though. He's got a lot more sense in his head. And speaking of Khabib, his boy, Islam Makachev, at 18-1, somebody that we love, fighting Drew Dober, who's been on a roll. Uh, Drew Dober has done very well. He was kind of one of these guys that took him a while to find himself, and he's on a three-fight win streak after losing to Dariush, uh, second-round armbar. He beat uh, Marco Polo Reyes, Nasrad Hakparast, and, uh, of course, uh, the uh, the Phoenix, which has since burned <laughs> into ashes, Alexander Hernandez. <laughs> uh, moving right along, so... Um, but no, I, I like Islam Makachev. Khabib was talking about why. Okay, so w- Dr. Will Wu is going to answer this for, for you, Khabib. You're wondering why more people are. Everyone's talking about Justin. Everyone's talking about Dustin. Everyone's talking about Tony. Everyone's talking about Connor. And the reason why they're all talking about them in Europe and they're not talking about Islam is. Why is that, Will? I mean, the dude. Has once the dude barely fights. <laughs> yeah, he has like, to oh. start. He has to start fighting. Uh, his All last fight no was September seventh of twenty nineteen. So God. that's why we're not talking about him, Khabib. It's not because we don't think that he's awesome. It's because he doesn't fight enough. Uh, he fought two. He fought twice in twenty nineteen, April and September. He got two wins, two unanimous decisions, and before that. He didn't fight since 2018. So the guy hasn't fought that much, and people aren't going to talk about you if you're averaging like once a year. The makachev Sarukin fight was ridiculously entertaining and good. Which that one? Sarukian? Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll that look at so that. Good. It was so good. Back and forth. Back and forth. Oh, yeah. You sent that to me, right? Skill on the ground and yeah. on their feet, takedowns. Oh, it was good. Oh, Sarukians so from Russia also. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so good. That makes sense. Okay. Sarukian won his last fight. In, was he in 258? Uh, let me see. Sarukian fought in January. He he beat Matt Frivola in January, three-round decision. 
And he beat Davi Ramos. Everybody's beating Davi Ramos. <laughs> Except you're, unless you're in jiu-jitsu, then you got, you got problems. So, um, yeah, right. I go. So, yeah, so we're all going with Islam Makachev um, against Drew Dober, although Drew Dober's on a three-fight win streak uh, just because Islam's got such a great skill set and got a great motor. Uh, Tiago Santos against Alexander Rakic. Um, I love Tiago Santos. Um, I love his game. Obviously, he has not fought since he lost to Glover in November. So, yeah, he got on the ground. You know, you know, you get taken down by Glover, you're in trouble. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you're in big, big. When Glover's on top of him, that's why John Jones, you know, knew. He said, this guy cannot wrestle me. He's not going to get me down. But I love this guy, Alexander Rackage. He's out of Vienna, Austria. He beat Anthony Smith in a three-round decision. He lost to uh, Volkan Ostemir, who Volkan Ostemir is just, Oh my God, the guy is so tough, man. I feel bad for you idiots from West Palm Beach or wherever that messed with him outside a club, man. You, you, you know, you guys in Florida, you know, you want to mess with a guy like that, man. You're really taking your life in your hands. Walk away, DJ, DJ. Did you see the footage of the two or the one Oklahoma Sooner I, football player? I didn't. No, buddy. No. So I guess they were harassing these two like brothers or something. Mm-hmm. And they were obviously, they were bigger, like this football mm-hmm. player and his buddy were bigger. Um, and uh, the smaller guys, they're MMA, they've been training MMA for, like, since they were young. One of them already had a bloody nose, and you just see the video of them arguing in the bathroom, and he already has a bloody nose. And then those two MMA dudes just unloaded on those football players. Took it, them down? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was like... It, it almost looked like, you know, football players being football players. They think they dominate physically. Uh, and literally, yeah. you know, there's this thing called knowing how to fight, <laughs> which which um, which wins over being a football player. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the other thing is that if you don't start fights, you know, you can be as big and as, you know, you want. And I realize there are guys like those guys where people go out and look for trouble with them. But there's no reason to go into a bar and see these smaller guys and start with them. And when you do that, you get what you deserve. So they got they got what they deserve. So totally. good. Um, I think that's if all we got. Stand up, I got Tiago. If it stays on the feet. Yeah, I, I've yeah. That it, you know what? It's gonna be that is gonna be a bang up fight. I mean, those guys are um, the those guys are both Alexander Rakic has a great stand-up game as well so it just depends on uh if uh tiago where his game has evolved to we really don't know he hasn't fought that much he really needs to fire leg kicks and land leg kicks uh alexander radkic is a different style of kick he's more like a push kick high kick kind of kind of a guy but um that's gonna be interesting i'm looking i'm looking forward to it so uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and pick them, and I don't, I don't care about the rest of them. You know, if you look down the card, when you see Joseph Benavidez and Askar Askarov, uh-huh. I'm picking Askarov to win that fight. He's kind of like the next great thing at, uh, at um, is it featherweight? No, it's um, flyweight. At flyweight, he is a very, very talented guy, and I think they want to build his name off of uh, Benavidez, so... Uh, Dominic Cruz, I hope he beats the hell out of the guy that uh, 
was talking crap about uh, about Megan Anderson on the on the podcast was stupid. What's that guy's name? Uh, Sean O'Malley. That was the guy that was making uh, sexualized comments about. Okay, so even on my podcast, which is not anywhere listened to or monitored the way a UFC fighter's podcast is, particularly a top five uh, featherweight, uh, which Sean O'Malley is, okay? And if you're on there, why are you going to start bringing up UFC female fighters and start talking about their anatomy? Now, do we, does anyone here not think that that locker room talk occurs in the girls' locker rooms among girl fighters. I have heard girls' fighters make comments about certain male fighters that they find attractive. It happens. Are we, you know, is anybody surprised that it doesn't happen in the guys' locker room? Sure it does, okay? This girl's hot. I would love to date her, blah, 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 blah. But don't go on your podcast that gets put out to the world and make those kind of comments. It's absolutely stupid. Is that fair? Will? I would agree. At this time, there's a certain level of public discourse that has been ignored. Absolutely. Look at Governor it, Cuomo, my stupid governor from New York. But I think I think uh, that needs this public discord needs to be revisited or the the <laughs> Yes, it just needs to be revisited. People, uh, there's a time and a place. Yeah, and that's not the time. We're not saying, I mean, I think we'd be naive to say these conversations don't happen among single people in locker rooms or when these girls get together and have sure. have yeah, drinks. Sure. It happens. And the guys do do it and the girls do it probably to a lesser degree, but they do it. And you don't go and broadcast it. And, and if you don't be a moron to sit there and smoke bowls on your podcast and sit there and do that to Megan Anderson, who is, was very offended and very hurt. So, um, so Casey, Kenny, good luck. Uh, hopefully Dominic has a great comeback against you. All right. So Dr. Will Wu, it is at Dr. Will Wu on Twitter. And what's the closeout song that I have, Will? You have to remind me. Oh, oh got yeah. it. This got it. Got all it. All the tough guys out there. Oh yeah, all the guys with yeah. Just I'll just leave it. This for all the tough guys out there. Yeah, it's for you tough guys out there. Let me see if I can get. Oh man, please don't mess with me now. See what happens okay, when you make it on, it. you're not on the ball with the closeout song. No, you know, hey man, you know where's my engineer, Will? You haven't got exactly. me an engineer yet. Exactly. All right, so um, all the fame is going to Nick. You have to. All right, so let's let's cover what we got coming up. So coming up on the show, we're going to have Nate Wilcox is going to come and talk rock and roll music. Um, I don't I don't know how compelled Will's going to be like that, but on the next show we will talk about Jeremy Lin and NBA and what he's going through. Oh yeah, I'm um, I'm sorry we didn't cover. Do you think it's no? I I just think it deserves a little bit more time, so we don't have to. Get okay, it. okay, we're gonna hit that up about Jeremy Lin. He was one of my favorite New York Knicks, and he also happens to be Chinese. And go figure, my co-host is Chinese and Mexican, so we will talk about. Uh, He's more Chinese than I am. 
He is. <laughs> and he went to Harvard, but that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> so we'll cover that on the on our next show. We'll talk about that. But coming up, so we've got. Uh, you know, Kit, you know, Kit, probably, I wonder if his parents are displeased. <laughs> he went to Harvard and he became a basketball player. His parents. Oh, are probably they have like, to be. They're oh, like shame. So They're like, why? My son is not a doctor or a lawyer. He's a basketball player. <laughs> yeah, because I think when he first came to the Knicks, he was couch surfing or something. So I don't remember whose house he was crashing at, but yeah. I say that um, joke. I'm so happy for Jeremy Lin and his career, and he's in the G League with Golden State, and I love it. I'd love to I literally – yeah, I would love to have him back on the Knicks. And I say do it because this time, you know, he's still going to have his degree. You know, we talked about having a degree earlier. This is a short period of time that he's going to play professional basketball. It goes really quick. And then he's going to start life. And he could be like Myron Roll, Dr. Myron Roll, formerly of the NFL, you know, or these guys that go on to great careers after sports. But you have this finite amount of time. He doesn't may not have a family yet. I don't know. He might still be no, single. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy the hell out of it right now. He goes to China and he does uh, basketball camps and stuff like that. Um, phenomenal guy. So, um, so anyway, we'll cover jeremy lynn next time but you gotta uh, play the tough guy song now i'm gonna play it i got it i got it i got it all the tough guys out there i got it but 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 first i'm gonna talk about what's coming up so hopeful uh this week we'll get kayla yakov on i'm angling to get kid nate from bloody elbow as a guest we're gonna have on hank edney my uh heavy metal guitar player friend and nick and they are gonna basically ask questions about the history of heavy metal with one of the foremost rock historians that I know, Nate Wilcox of Bloody Elbow. He is phenomenal. The Let It Roll podcast. If you haven't checked it out, this guy goes from the 20s all the way up to today. He did uh, he did a whole historical on hip-hop. He did a whole historical on rap. So when it comes to, to popular music, rock music, rockabilly, heavy metal, Kid Nate... Has done nice. He's phenomenal. He's absolutely phenomenal. So this is going to be one of those episodes where I'm going to be staying out of the way and I'm going to let these guys ask questions of of uh, Nate Wilcox. And uh, I think it's going to be fun uh, because it's it's inspiring how much Nick loves heavy metal and my buddy Hank as well. So I think uh, they're going to be prepared. They're going to write out questions that I'm going to see before we have Nate on. So I'm going to make sure they're prepared for this. Uh, Kayla Yakov will have this week again. We talked about her uh, multiple time national champion. Maybe gonna be the first woman to ride in MotoGP, and that is a rather lofty goal. That would be like Formula One or like Dana Patrick, uh, Danica Patrick, uh, running uh, NASCAR as the first female in NASCAR. So big, big stuff. Uh, and that's all I got, Will. So uh, it's at Dr. Will Wu on Twitter. And it is at Eats Thrash, Eats Thrash, which is Nick Cazono, our other co-host, who is moving uh, moving houses tonight. So he'll be in a different locale next time we speak to him. And um, I'm so glad Will could be here uh, since we didn't have Nick. Just like, uh, thankfully, Nick was here when we didn't have Will. So, well, All right. Thank you for uh, lifting my suspension. I, pre- I appreciate it. Yeah, dude. Will, you're not suspended, man. We lucky, we lucky to have somebody like you. So let's 
Let's bring it in here. Our, our homegirl, Taylor Swift. And for uh, Will Wu, this is DJ San Marco. And Life MMA in the NBA says one love, peace out, and we'll see you down the road. nothing like taylor swift to take us out of a podcast that has mma in it <laughs> all right yeah i know hey man you know what everybody's